Well, good morning, guys. Hey, before we get started, uh, got a quick announcement. Uh, Audie uh, Wright asked me to make this announcement. Uh, Center of Hope, which is in Weatherford, uh, serves meals Tuesday through Thursday to the homeless and the needy in, in that community. And um, they need help today and tomorrow. They actually need help every Tuesday and Wednesday um, between 9 and 2 o'clock. They need volunteers. And here's what you do. You um, serve the food. The foods, some of the guys are cooking, some, some serve, but they need volunteers. And so if you're interested, Audie's back in the doorway. Uh, just see him afterwards and he can tell you what, what they need. And they need at least four to five volunteers every week. And so if you've got some available time, um, check with him. And um, we'd love to see you guys help out with that. Well, to, today we're on the next to the last week. We have one more week left and we'll be done with the book of Exodus. Um, we'll um, meet next week. Then we're going to take a break for the holidays and we'll come back in January, and we're going to do the book of Hebrews, which is kind of a New Testament commentary on the Pentateuch, and it'll help us understand a lot of what we're looking at. Next week, we'll kind of wrap up this whole series with a look at the tabernacle and the arrival of God's glory into the Holy of Holies, and we'll see what that looks like and what it means for us. This morning, um, you know, I love studying the scriptures, but sometimes it actually drives me nuts because um, I come up with these grand plans of here's what I'm going to cover. And then as I study, God says, no, you're not going to cover that. You're going to cover something else. That's what's going to happen this morning. So if you did your homework, you're ready for me to unpack the tabernacle. I'm shifting that to next week. And today we're going to look at something completely different um, that I hadn't planned on doing, but that's the way it works. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to chapter 32, and we're going to kind of backtrack and then move forward. But let me pray for us and we'll get going. Lord, I, I thank you once again for these mornings with these guys and the, the chance to get together and study your word. And I pray today as we open up this passage that you would show us what you want us to see, that we would understand that you want us to know more of you, to understand how great you are, how good you are, how gracious you are, but also how powerful and righteous and holy you are. And that, Father, you have chosen to dwell with us, not just with us, but in us. And may we see that this morning in a way like we've never seen it before, that the God of the universe has chosen to make his home in us. And may we never take that lightly, take it for granted, treat it flippantly, but understand the incredible, amazing fact of that reality. So would you be with us this morning, speak to us, guide us, direct us, and we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Hey, one more reminder. Um, I told you about this last week. December 5th, which is a Tuesday, uh, from 7 to 8, we're going to have what we're calling a, um, a night of prayer and praise. It's, it's going to be just for the men who've attended Band of Brothers on all the campuses over this last semester. And it's going to be at the Fort Worth campus. We're only going to have it on that one night. We'll have it in the Oak Room. You're going to get an email about this. You'll get a, actually an invitation that you can respond to. But here's the reason I want to do that. It's something the Lord's laid on my heart. So for all these weeks, we've been studying about the character of God, the nature of God, that our God is a great God. Our God is the same God that rescued the Israelites. He's the same God that parted the Red Sea. He's the same God that gave the man and the quail in the wilderness. And so that God is a great God. And what I want to do is get together on the 5th that night for prayer and praise. We're going to sing and we're going to pray together as men. And we're going to pray to our great God for our families, our homes, our church, our community, our nation, and this world. That that great God, the God of Sinai, the God who delivered the people of Israel, will, would do something great this next year that we could see the power of God in our lives. And so we're going to spend some time in prayer, hopefully to get our hearts ready for the holidays, but also for the new year to come. With all the madness going on around us, we need to be people of prayer. So you'll get an invitation to that. I hope you'll, you'll join us that night. So where are we going this morning? Well, as I started looking back over these passages, we've, we've left a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. You know, we, we've had to edit out and not deal with a lot of topics. And, and I felt like I was rushing through some things that I, I don't think I have the right to rush through. 
So we're going to go back and look at chapter 32 in the, in the following chapters, because I think it's going to help us understand better next week when we look at the tabernacle, this incredible tent that God had the people build. Last week, we saw in chapter 32, the people of Israel did something really egregious. They, they decided to make a new version of God. It's not a new God. It's not a different God. It's Yahweh in a different form. And that's so much more dangerous than just turning your back and worshiping a totally separate God. It's, it's remaking your maker. That's, that's what we looked at last week. Taking Yahweh, this, this God of Sinai, and transforming into something else that's not even remotely like who he really is. But that's what we tend to do. When we don't like one particular aspect of God, we just either erase it, ignore it, and then we manufacture the God that we want. That's what they did. And it really didn't sit well with God. Now, how do we know it's not another God? Well, in Exodus 32, verse four, then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, molded it in the shape of a calf, and when the people saw it, they exclaimed, oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, what they're saying is this, this, is, this is a God. They actually use the plural Elohims, and it reminds them of all the gods they had back in Egypt. But what Aaron's going to clarify is that in his mind, this isn't just gods or representation of other gods. It's Yahweh. Listen to what he says. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. That word is Yahweh, the name of God. That's the name God used to describe himself to Moses. I am Yahweh. And so Aaron is basically saying, hey guys, this calf is Yahweh. That's who you're bowing down to. That's who you're worshiping. And they had a feast and a festival and there, it literally, as we saw from um, Paul's words, it turned into a literal orgy. It, it, it was far worse than even Moses imagined. And that's what we're going to see today. It says, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. Now, he's been with God. He's gone up into the cloud. He's disappeared for 40 days and 40 nights. He's received, once again, the law, the book of the covenant, the stipulations for the entire covenant relationship in the form of tablets that have been written on stone by the finger of God. Not literally. In other words, no finger was seen, no hand came out, but God somehow inscribed on those stones his testimony, his law. And now Moses is coming down the mountain, having been informed of God what's happening in the valley. So he's coming down and he's interceded already for the people saying, Lord, honor your name, honor your promises. Don't obliterate these people, but redeem them, excuse them, forgive them. But now he heads down the mountain. He's got those tablets in his hand, written on the front and the back by the finger of God, the work of God. They're the handiwork of God. And we, we talked about this last week. They are a sign of who God is. All the law uh, the covenant is a reflection of the nature of God. So he's carrying that in his hands, the writing of God engraved on those tablets. So you got to get that picture. Here comes Moses, 40 days and 40 nights in the literal presence of God. He's coming down the mountain. He's got the tablets of stone in his hand. This is God's covenant relationship, his expectations of his people. He knows what the people have done. At least he thinks he knows. And he also knows that he's going to get God's favor. God has said, okay, I won't destroy them. But what happens? As he's coming down with his sidekick, Joshua, Joshua hears the noise of the people as they shouted. And he says to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. That's how loud it is. Whatever this party that's going on, it's so loud. They're halfway down the mountain and they can hear it. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. It's a, it's a feast, it's a festival. They're having a party down in the valley. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets of stone out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. What's really interesting about this to me is that Moses is the guy who just inter interceded for the people, right? Hey Lord, don't be angry. Forgive him. Now he gets down and sees exactly what God saw. And he's like, excuse my French, holy crap. What have these people done? This, I can't believe this is happening. 
And he's, he's angry. How angry? He's got the tablets of stone written by the hands of God in his arms, and he literally throws them down and smashes them. Now, I don't think that was um, a sign about his thoughts of the law. It's, it's a sign of how mad he is at the people. It, we're not told why he did what he did. He's just so angry that that's what he did. I can relate to this because I, that's how my anger tends to show up. I kick inanimate objects. I, I, just, I throw stuff. I just, I, I don't cuss at my wife. I don't cuss at my kids or grandkids. But when I'm alone and by myself and nobody's watching except God, um, that's how I display anger. I'll kick a tire. I'll, I'll, if the dog's near, I'll go after it. It's just, that's how I show anger. So I can kind of relate to this. But it's interesting that the guy who was the intercessor for the people of God suddenly is what? Incensed with the people of God. Why? Because he saw it firsthand. He literally comes down the mountain. God told him what they had done. He was very explicit. But it's one thing to hear what they had done and then to see it with his own eyes. And whatever was going down in the valley, when he saw it, he's so angry that he explodes. He's shocked. He is amazed at how could these people do what they're doing? And again, we saw how Paul says that they were, they were involved in immorality. They were sexually involved. This is more than just a festival, a feast, a party. This is something really egregious in the eyes of God. And it shocks Moses to no end, to the point that he explodes. It's far worse than anything he could ever have dreamed up. See, when he interceded, I think he said, oh, okay, almost like boys will be boys. You know, they, yeah, they screwed up. I, they, they did something bad, but you need to forgive them. Then he comes down and he sees it. You know, like, this is unforgivable. I can't believe what these people are doing. But he, at that moment, understood the anger of God, that righteous indignation of God when he said, I'm going to destroy these people. I'm glad he interceded. I'm glad he stepped in on behalf of the people, but now he's what? He's angry. And he's gonna intercede, but it's gonna take a little bit of time. It's interesting what he does, and, and this is part of what I didn't wanna blow past. It's a bizarre part of the passage. He literally takes the calf, grinds it into dust, mixes it with water, and makes the people drink it. I don't know where he got this from. Uh, there's nothing in the text that says God told him to do this. But he's so angry with that idol and what, what, what they're doing. And he can tell that this idol is the center of all their attention. It's the problem that they've got. So he grinds it to dust, throws it in water, and he makes them drink it. He makes them consume it. Consume their sin. See, God wanted to consume them. That's what he said. I'm gonna consume them. I am the devouring fire. And Moses goes, no, 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 don't do that. Honor your integrity of your name. Protect your name. Keep your promises. Be God. Be the faithful God. And God goes, okay, I will. Now Moses wants to consume them, but in a different way. He wants them to literally ingest their sin. It's a fascinating, I don't know why he did it. I don't know if there was some supernatural thing going on. I don't know if, some commentators think that when they ingested this concoction, that it made some of them sick and it's how they knew who was guilty, who was actually committing the sins, who was the ringleader in this thing. The text doesn't say that. We don't know why he did what he did, but he did it. He literally made them drink this. It says he took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. How in the world he got 1.5 to 2 million people to do this, I don't know, but he did. Now, maybe it's because they were so scared when they saw his anger and his rage, and they knew that he represented God. But somehow he got the people to do it, to literally ingest their false view of God. What are they ingesting? That idol. Okay, so that's what you want to worship? That's Yahweh to you? Well, guess what? You're going to take that in. You're going to ingest your false view of God. You're going to have to consume it. Or guess what? Be consumed. See, what did God say? I'm going to consume them. And he goes, no, don't. But he makes them consume their own sin. It's a, it's a fascinating portrait. And one of the things that we have to think about, Paul deals with this later on in the New Testament. And he paints this picture of the reality and the nature of sin. This one he says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. 
Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? I truly believe that what was going on down in the valley was, was immorality of, of a immense nature. It, it was over-the-top immorality in light of worship of God. In other words, they thought this is Yahweh, and they're doing it in front of their God. The God who said, don't commit adultery. Don't be immoral. Don't be like the other nations. That's exactly what they're doing. They're performing these gross acts in front of their God. He goes on and says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Now, what makes this important to me and where we're going with this whole lesson this morning is that I need us to understand, and this includes me, that God lives in me. And this is, this is, I'm still trying to get my head around this, guys. That the God of the universe, the, the creator of all that we can see, all that we know, the creator of our very bodies has literally come to dwell in these bodies. The God of Sinai, the God of judgment, the God of holiness, the God of law has come and made his presence in my body. I don't get it. I don't understand it. The sad thing is I don't necessarily live like I believe it, that that God lives in me in the form of the Holy Spirit. And here are these people taking the God of Sinai, the God who said, I want to come dwell in your midst. And they go, we don't want that God in our midst. We would rather have this representation of that God, this golden calf live in our midst. And, and Moses says, okay, if that's what you want, you're going to ingest that God into your bodies. It's a picture of where God really wants to dwell. And the whole picture of Exodus is pointing to what? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ comes to live within us. He tabernacled among us, but the goal was for him to eventually live in us. See, that's the point. And what these people have done is far beyond even what Moses understands at this moment and far beyond anything they can understand. I love this from Eugene Merrill. He says, the sin was poured as it were into their bowels along with the water. You can already tell this is an old quote, right? Nobody says bowels anymore unless you're talking to your doctor. The sin was poured as it were into their bowels along with the water as a symbolical sign that they would have to bear it and atone for it. In this manner, the thing that they had worshiped would become a product of their own waste, the very epitome of worthlessness and impurity. That's a strong statement, right? You want that God? Guess what? You're going to ingest that God because where does God literally want to come dwell? In you. So you're going to get that God in you, but he's going to come out the other end. That's how worthy that God is of worship. That's how valuable, helpful, powerful that God is. You will literally excrete that God. I, I think that's a graphic picture, but I think it's an appropriate picture when we start to play fast and loose with our idea of God. Well, then Moses turns his attention to Aaron. And I'm still amazed that Aaron comes out of this pretty much unscathed. I, I don't understand that. He's going to eventually become the high priest of Israel with the responsibility of going before God into the tabernacle to represent the people of God on behalf of God. And yet Moses says to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? What, did they twist your arm? Did they threaten you? Did they, they hold a knife to your neck? What possessed you to do this? And I love Aaron's response. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Now he's not talking about Lord, he's talking about you, my master, my, my brother. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set, the people, this people. He uses the same term God used earlier. This people, your people, Moses. Even Aaron's throwing it back, this people. They're not mine. You know, the, I, I, I'm not in charge of them. You, you're the one who left. And he begins to kind of throw the people under the bus. You know the people. He says, they are set. Oops. Yeah, you know the people that they are set on evil. This is just how they are. These people are just evil. For they said to me, and I love where he goes with this. Make us gods who shall go before us. He's right. He's telling the truth. He's not lying at this point. As for this Moses, 
the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. He literally repeats what the people said. We saw this last week. So at no point, he's not lying. He's telling the truth. This is what happened. They came to me. You're nowhere to be found. So they said, do this. So I said to them, let any who have, have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire. This is where it gets dicey. This is where he starts to kind of make things up. And out came this calf. Man, this is, I've heard this in one form or another from all of my kids when they were living at home. You know, I, I don't know how it happened, dad. I just, I was just standing there and it just happened. You know, well, who did it? I don't know. Well, you're the only one in the room. Well, I, I didn't do it. I mean, this is, it's sad, right? It's just sad to watch a grown man do this. And he's lying to his brother, but ultimately he's lying to God. They gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire and out comes a calf. He's almost inferring that God made it happen, isn't he? That I just threw the gold in there and this is what happened. It just came out. But what do we know happened? He crafted it with his own hands. He made it, but he's trying to get out from under the heat. Yeah, he, he's, he's, he's digging himself out of a hole and it's not gonna work. He's, he's, it's the blame game, right? We all do it. We've seen our kids do it. Our grandkids do it. It, it, it. Everybody does it. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. So he blames the people. How does he blame the people? They're set on evil. They're just wicked. They're just, they're just evil. And he's right, they are. But it's not necessarily their fault. He could have said no, right? He could have said, no, far be it for me to do anything like that. We're, no, we worship that God. We don't worship this God. I'm not gonna do this, but he gave in. Whatever it is, peer pressure, fear, he gave in. Then he blames the fire, right? It just, out came the calf, the fire did it. It's interesting that he's almost attributing that fire, the fire that he crafted with his own hands to be the same as the fire on the mountain. He, he's literally saying, God made this happen. God created this calf. Moses ain't buying it. Moses knows that's not the fact. So when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, that, that's a picture of run amok. I mean, they're just out of control. They have literally gotten out of control, even to the derision of their enemies. They make the Egyptians look like priests and nuns. You know, they, they make them look holy compared to the way they're acting. They've never seen anything like this in Egypt. And so Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said, who is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. This is a real important part of the story because Moses is going to call for action. And he's going to say, who is on God's side, the Lord's side, Yahweh's side, the God of Sinai, not that thing, that former thing that's now in your stomachs. Who's on the side of Yahweh? Who's gonna line up? And it tells us that the tribe of Levi, of which he and Aaron are both members. Remember, they're, they're from the tribe of Levi. See, he's going to fill their full stomachs with something more. He, he's gonna give them the just desserts of their actions. You wanna worship a false God, a God of your own making, Yahweh in a new form. If that's what you wanna do, here's what's gonna happen. And he leads their purge. He's gonna step in, and I believe this is by the hand of God, by the direction of God, he's gonna purge the camp. And it's not gonna be a pretty picture. This is again, a part of God that we don't necessarily like. It's a part of the Old Testament we don't like to read. We don't like it when it seems that some people are treated in a quote, unfair way. But is it unfair? Is it unjust for God to do the just thing with people who have treated him unrighteously? acting in an immoral way. See, all Moses is doing is dealing out to the people what they deserve, they justly deserve, the judgment of God. God is going to forgive, but that doesn't mean you get away scot-free. God is going to allow the people to continue to be his chosen people, but some of those people who led this thing, who were the ringleaders in it, are gonna suffer. The guilty had to be punished. And again, we can say, I, I don't like that part of God, but that's, that's God. That's, see, you and I have escaped that punishment, but that doesn't mean the punishment no longer exists. And there are people living all around us 
who are under the judgment of God and will not escape that punishment unless they come to know the same God that we know through Jesus Christ. See, he's got to step in. And I love how the Levites step up. His tribe steps up. Those, those men step up and say, we're on the Lord's side. We will do what needs to be done. We will answer the call. See, what's important is that somebody is still willing to stand up for the Lord. The whole camp has not necessarily gone crazy. It looks like it has, but we're gonna find out that it's really only 3,000 people who are the root of the problem and they need to be cleared out. So at this point in the narrative, Moses displays a holy vengeance for the Lord's reputation. Having seen the extent of the wickedness that had taken place in his absence, Moses knew that he had to intervene. God had been justly angry about the situation in the camp and now Moses shared that anger. See, this is what's interesting. There is such a thing as righteous indignation and it's not normally what you and I feel. Now we'll call it that. We'll get mad at somebody, something, some ideology, some political party, some politician, some individual, and we'll think that that's righteous indignation, but it's really just your anger from your heart. See, what he did is he connected with God and it's coming from God is angry and God is just in his anger and I'm going to step in on behalf of that anger on God's part. I'm going to bring the judgment of God as it needs to come. See, he knew that this situation was going to require drastic measures. God had given him a plan for mitigating the damage done by the people's actions, and it was going to be painful and permanent. There had to be a purging. There had to be a cleansing. The guilty were going to pay for their sins with their lives. I don't like that any more than you like that. But guess what? That's the way it works. That's the way God's redemptive plan works, that there are people, thousands, millions, billions of people who will fall under the judgment of God unless A, they're told about the gospel and B, they respond to that gospel. We have had the benefit of hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, but not everybody has yet heard that good news. And that's why we are here to tell them the good news of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. Because if they don't hear it, they will pay for their sins. And that's what happens in this story. And the Levites step up and go, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna act as agents of God. We're gonna help Moses bring judgment on those who deserve it. Now remember, these are the people of Israel purging the people of Israel. You know, I would love to purge the world. You know, I would love to go outside these doors, find all the heathen who don't believe in Jesus Christ and purge the world of them. But judgment begins in the house of the Lord, the scriptures tell me. This is where the purging needs to begin, guys. Now, I'm not saying I wanna get rid of some of you and I wanna, you know, I wanna smite you and bring down holy fire on you. No, but I, I would like to light a holy fire in you. I, I would love to see you get excited about your faith and grow deeper in your walk with the Lord and go into the holidays with a greater desire for God's greatness and goodness to show up in your life than you ever had. But see, we've gotta be concerned about the church, the body of Christ. Just like Moses was concerned about the body of Israel and the Levites stepped up. And what do they do? They literally wipe out 3,000 who evidently were the ringleaders in this whole thing. See, it wasn't the whole congregation as much as it was a small segment of that congregation who were leading the charge and who were propagating this myth about this God and infecting the camp. That's, that's what happens, right? It's an infection. It's like cancer that spreads. And so the efforts of these men was prophylactic. It was preventative. It was to stop it from continuing. We don't want this to continue. And sometimes, guys, we allow things to enter into the church that we know is wrong, but we don't speak up. We don't say anything. We may see it happening in another guy's life, even at your table just through things that he says, comments that he makes, or maybe you hear from his wife who shares with your wife about the reality of their marriage and, and uh, who am I to, I don't need to speak into that. I don't want to say anything. I don't, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to offend him. I don't want to lose him as a friend. And yet what God is calling for is, no, we need to purge the camp. Again, not get rid of him, but help get rid of the sin that is infecting him and might infect the rest of the camp. See, that's what happens here. These men step up and we see later on, this is what 
Moses calls the people to. Serve only the Lord your God and fear him alone. Obey his commands, listen to his voice and cling to him. The false prophets or visionaries who try to lead you astray must be put to death. Listen to how harsh this is. This is Moses calling the people to not listen to those who would lead you astray. False prophets and visionaries. That means they're in the camp, right? They're not outside the camp. They're not back in Egypt. They're not in Philistia. They're not in Canaan. These are people living in your camp who are speaking on behalf of God, but who don't rep represent God. And guess what? That's in the church today. Uh, it, it, sometimes it comes from the very pulpit itself, but sometimes it comes from the pew. But people who are claiming to speak on behalf of God, leading you astray. And in this case, he says, they must be put to death. I, I don't think we can take this and apply it to the church and go, everybody who disagrees with you or teaches false doctrine needs to be killed, but they do need to be purged. They need to, need to be exposed for who they really are. And we see that all through the writings of Paul when he spoke to these churches and said, you need to cast that one out. You need to treat him as an enemy of the cross because he is. See, we need to be serious about this. Why? Because they encourage rebellion against the Lord your God who redeemed you from slavery and brought you up out of the hand of Egypt. Since they try to lead you astray from the way the Lord, Yahweh your God, commanded you to live, you must put them to death. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. See, that, that idea of purging is gonna happen over and over again in the life of the Israelites. And we read it and it makes us squirm. Or at least it makes us think, man, I'm glad that's the God of the Old Testament. I, I, I'm glad God's not like that anymore. I'm glad God doesn't treat his people that way anymore. Well, he really does. Not to the same degree, right? He doesn't literally smite us and take us out. He doesn't smoke us. But at the same time, he does expect, expect that there be purging among his people. Sin in the camp cannot be tolerated. Years ago, Julie and I, uh, my wife and I had a small group that met in our home. We were a young couple, had young kids, and all the couples in our group were young couples with young kids. And there was one couple, he was an American Airlines pilot, probably six foot two, six three, good looking guy, athletic. She was a beautiful woman. They had a beautiful little girl. And every time we met, every week, they would come into our home and it would get real uncomfortable because he would demean his wife. He would say harsh things about her. He would ridicule her. I don't know why you can't keep our house like Julie keeps their house. And I, man, this meal is wonderful. Why can't you learn to cook like this? And just, and we just go, oh man, it was so uncomfortable. And every time when it was over, my wife would come to me and she goes, you need to say something to him. And I'd go, um, why? She goes, he just, he, he just infuriates me. And I said, yeah, yeah, but I, you know, what, what do you want me to say? Well, here's what I'm thinking. He's six foot two, very athletic. I'm not. And, and I'm like, he'll punch my lights out. And I, I just would ignore her. And then, then she would say, he creeps me out. I go, what, what does that mean? The way he looks at me. And then I start taking an interest. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, he just, he just looks at me weird. He, he just, it makes me uncomfortable. And the way he, he hugs all the women. And I hadn't noticed that. And then I started to notice it, but I still won't speak up. And then one, one week, his wife shows up without him. And during the prayer time, she shares that he's left her for a stewardess. And what's interesting is that in that, as we began to pray and as we began to talk, every woman in the group said, they turned, turned to their husband and said, I told you, I told you he was doing this. I told you he couldn't be trusted. And it was like an epiphany that our wives were consistently telling us that we have, a, we have sin in the camp and we need to deal with it. And none of us, none of the men were willing to step into that. Now, I'm not telling you guys that we could have saved that marriage had we spoken up, but I guarantee you there's a greater likelihood that we could have had we spoken up. But see, we were all afraid to. Well, who am I to judge? What, 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 that's not my, no, I should have. I should have spoken up, even if he punched me. I should have done the right thing. And that's, that's what's happening here. All forms of rebellion must be excised. They must be taken care of. And I know you don't feel like you're worthy of judging someone else, but guys, if we don't, who will? If I'm not willing to speak, speak into the life of another man who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who's gonna speak into that? His wife? She's probably tried and he's not listening. 
Maybe his lost friends have even spoken into his life and he's not listening to them. And maybe he won't listen to us, but at least we should try to purge the camp. Again, not to kill him, not to get rid of him, but to call him to repentance. That's what we should be up to. So the next day, Moses said to the people, you sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. This is an interesting part of the story because Moses knows the people have grieved God. They know that God, he knows that God, at least at one point was gonna kill them, wipe them out. So he says, now that I know just how bad it is, I'm gonna go before God on your behalf and see if maybe I can atone for your sins. This is a fascinating process on Moses' part. He's gonna intercede for them a second time, goes up the mountain, goes into the cloud, goes before God, and he attempts to atone for their sins. And again, this is one of those, those passages that I kind of blew past and I had to go back and look at again because what Moses does here is pretty interesting. And I don't think it's of God. He uses his life as a bargaining chip. Here's what he basically says. You either forgive them or kill me. That's basically what it says to God. Forgive them or kill me. Now, God has already said, I will forgive them, but some will die. And Moses has made sure that some died, right? He's gotten the Levites to help. They've killed 3,000 of them. But now he says, if you don't forgive the people, either kill me, do it or kill me. And really what he's doing is he's offering himself as atonement. But what does the Lord say? Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. I am not done yet. Hey, Moses, you go do your job and let me do my job. That's really what God's saying. I didn't ask you to atone for the people. I've asked you to lead. That's why I called you. You're not done yet. You're at Sinai. You're not in the promised land. You still have work to do. And your job is to deliver, not to die. I didn't call you to die. Because guess what? I've, I could have killed you at any moment. I could have killed you the first time I met you here in the burning bush and you said, no, don't send me, send someone else. I could have killed you right then and there, but I didn't. Because your job is not to die, it's to deliver the people. I didn't ask you to atone. I've given you a purpose, now live it out and leave the people up to me. See, atonement was not his job. Atonement's not your job. Your job is not to die on the part of anybody, yourself or any other individual. You can't. I can't atone for the sins of me. I can't atone for the sins of you. I can't atone for my sins of my children, my grandchildren. It's not my job. My job, just like Moses, is to lead, not bleed. Lead others to the true source, source of atonement. Point others to Jesus, not to me. That's the point going on here is that his job was to get them to the land and leave who gets to go to the land up to God. Here's what we know. A good portion of those people aren't ever gonna make it to the land. Out of this group, but even when they get to the border of the land and the first generation says, we don't wanna go in, that generation will die off. It'll take 40 years, but not everybody gets to the land. My job is not to worry about who goes, it's to lead them to the source, how to get there. So he, his job was not to atone for anybody. So nevertheless, in the day that I, when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And 30, verse 35, the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf the one that Aaron made. We don't know how many died, but some did. See, God is just, God is loving, God is merciful, God is holy, and God has to deal with sin, and he does. So the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. I want you to get up, I want you to go, I want you to leave Sinai and I want you to head to where you're supposed to go. Then verse three, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you're a stiff necked people. This is the part I want us to think about. God has spared many, judged some. He's told them the land is still there. Moses, do your job, get them to the land, but I'm not going with you. Now, I need you to stop and think about that for a moment. If you were Moses and you heard that, 
how would that impact you? I mean, God has led him all the way. He's led, led him from Sinai to Egypt and out of Egypt across the river or the sea all the way to Sinai. Now he's saying, I'm not going anymore lest I consume you on the way. It's that same word, consuming fire. I'm, lest I devour you because I know you're not done sinning yet. I know you're not, these, this is an evil people. And guess what? I'm not gonna go with you because if I do, I'm just gonna have to wipe you out because you're gonna continue to act the way you're acting because you're a stiff-necked people. So I will not go with you. He was threatening the loss of his presence. God will no longer go with you. And he had promised, I will dwell among you. He, that's the reason he gave him the plans for the tabernacle, right? I'm gonna give you the structure and I'm gonna come live in it in the midst of you, my glory in your presence. They weren't keen on that. They weren't excited about it. That's the reason they made the golden calf. But he had promised to live among them. And now he's saying, I'm gonna leave you. I'm not gonna do that. It's like all bets are off for that tabernacle. It ain't gonna be built. I'm not gonna come down. I'm not gonna leave with you. You'll still have my guiding angel. He'll still help get you to the land. You'll still have Moses, but you're not gonna have me. I I hope this sinks in this morning because it's sunk into my head this week. The, the, The very thought of no longer having God's presence within me should scare the bejeebers out of me. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't think that could ever happen. He'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me. But the very thought of not having his presence within me should scare us. And it should make us all the more grateful that we do have that presence. Because at this point, God was saying, I'm not going with you. You're on your own. You got Moses, you got the angel, but I'm not going with you anymore. So this drives Moses to do something pretty significant. He's gonna go to what's called the tent of meeting. This is not the tabernacle. It's outside the camp. It's a tent he used to go to, to seek input from God. It says, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. It's not the tabernacle. The tabernacle has not yet been built. It's the tabernacle basically being postponed. Remember, that's the dwelling place. That's where I'm gonna come. And so he goes into this different tent, this meeting tent in order to figure out what God's doing on the outside of the camp. Remember, it's the tabernacle is going to sit smack dab in the middle. He's going outside the camp to a different tent in order to meet God face to face, to seek God's will. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why will you not go with us? See, it's gotten his attention. He knows the ramifications of not having God go with him. So he goes to meet with God face to face. Literally, no. Is God there standing face to face? No, but this is where God would speak to the people prior to the tabernacle being built. And it's all about intimacy, community. God God does show up on the mountain in the tent of meeting. He is revealing himself along the way. Moses does have a close relationship with the Lord. And that's why he goes to meet with God to find out what is it you're doing? Why in the world would you say you're no longer gonna go with us? And what I love about this story is at this moment of crisis in his life and in the life of the Israelites, what does Moses see? more of God. He wants more of God. He fears the loss of God. And here's what he says. You, God, have told me, I know you by name and I look favorably on you. If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. He wants more of God. At this crisis moment in his life, when God says, I'm going to remove my presence from you, he says, no, no, no. I want more of you. I I need you. I can't live without you. I can't lead these people without you. He wants more of God. He feared the loss of God's presence. I have no idea whether the people fear the loss of God's presence or not. Well, Moses does, because Moses knows he's nothing without him. He cannot imagine living, guiding, leading without God's presence. How in the world am I gonna leave these people? Because they are stiff-necked, they are stubborn, they are evil. How do you expect me to lead them? And so God reassures him. Here's what he says. I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Notice what he does. He says, okay, I'll, I'll go with you, but I'm not going with them. I'll have a personal walk with you, but all bets are off for them. And that would have been very tantalizing, right? You know, if God came to me and says, you know what? 
Ken, I, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to talk with you. I'm going to be with you. But everybody else, they're out of the picture. And there's a part of me that go, well, I'm okay with that. As long as you're with me. See, that's how some of us live our Christian life is that it's just me and Jesus. You know, as long as I got Jesus, I'm fine. But see, I need to care about you and Jesus too. I need to care about your relationship with the Lord and you need to care about my relationship with the Lord. See, this is a test for Moses. Is Moses willing to sacrifice everyone else for his own benefit? Is he willing to be a leader or a loner? Hey, as long as me and Jesus are fine, I don't really care how you and the Lord are. That's between you and the Lord. You go work that out. No, if I'm gonna be a true leader, I need to care about not just my walk, but with your walk. Would his personal walk with God take precedence over his personal responsibility for God's people? Man, this is a huge test. And there are days I fight this test when, when God says, no, no, Ken, I know you've got a quiet time and I know you love spending time with me and I know you're trying to grow and I know this about you and I love you and I appreciate that about you, but do you really care about all those men that you work with every week? Do you really care? how they're doing, how their marriages are doing. Are you a leader or a loner? Moses says, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and your people, if you don't go with us? What's he saying? No, it's not good enough just me and you because I got to lead these people. And if you don't go with me, or if you just go with me and you don't go with them, then they're not going to follow me. See, he understands that this is a community effort. Your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all the other people on the earth. He knew that God's will was going to ultimately be done through the people of Israel and they needed God's presence. So I love this. He says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh, Show me your glory. And God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. See, Moses wants to know God better. He spent 40 days up on the mountaintop with God, but he goes, I wanna see more of you. Show me your glory, a glimpse of your glory. Show me more of you. I wanna grow deeper in my relationship with you. He hadn't gotten used to just seeing God. He wants to see more of God. He's not complacent. He wants his promises. He wants his presence. He wants his law. He wants everything he has. He wants God to go before them, renewing that covenant with them, guiding them, leading them, protecting them, showing himself before them. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant, God says. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth and in any nation and all the people among you whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. See, I love what God does. He goes, okay, you wanna see my glory? He shows him his glory. He puts him in the cleft of the rock and then God passes by and lets him see his back. And he gets a glimpse of, of his glory, but God goes, you know, I'm gonna show you so much more than that. I'm gonna show you so much more of my power, my goodness, my grace, my mercy, my favor. And I'm gonna do works like you've never seen before. I'm not done yet, Moses. Let me finish what I'm doing, but you be faithful and do what I've called you to do and get ready to see me in all my glory. Get ready to see my presence among the people. And that's what chapters 35 and 39 and 40 are all gonna be about. And we're gonna condense that all down into one lesson next week. See, what for us to understand the tabernacle, we have to understand that God was about to remove his presence from the people. I will no longer go with you. And yet chapter 40 says, and the glory of God descended on the tabernacle. He kept his promise. He showed up. He did what he said he would do. See, God was faithful. What did Moses call him to do? Be faithful, be the covenant keeping God, be the promise keeping God, do, who, do what you are, be who you are. And God goes, I will be. But he definitely gotten their attention, right? I'm gonna leave you. You're all on your own now. And the very thought of that, not the threat of it, because again, that's not gonna to happen to you or I, but the very thought of it should drive us to our knees that he would take up residence in me and in you. See, God's gonna build that, that temple, that tabernacle. And that's what we see. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. The people of Israel did according to all that God had commanded Moses. They did it. 
according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work and Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. And we'll end with this. This is when autonomy gives way to sovereignty. When it stops being about you and it becomes about him, his will, not your will. And the key to this, and we'll see it in detail next week, obedience is the key to blessing. I know you don't like that because I don't like it, but obedience is the key to blessing and submission to God's will is what brings satisfaction, not resistance to it, not doing things your way. And if you wanna enjoy God's presence, it's gonna require self-denial. This is what the people were gonna learn. Even building the tabernacle was gonna require self-denial, giving themselves up because their work is not yet done. There's more to come. God says, I'm gonna do a mighty work. And here's why I wanna gather together in December on the 5th from seven to eight, one hour, gather together on our knees before God so that we might see him do a mighty work among us. That's what I'm looking for. The most exciting part of the entire project was about to begin. Moses and the people of Israel were going to watch as the pieces were placed together of the tabernacle, slowly transforming the parts into the whole. And soon on the barren plains of the Sinai wilderness, the house of God would take form. The dream would become a reality. And once the tabernacle was complete, the next step and the journey to the promised land could begin again. See, God wasn't done yet. God has so much more in store. And guess what? The same is true today. So here's your first thought. If God were to suddenly remove his presence from your life, would it make any difference? If God just suddenly said, Ken, I'm done with you and vacated the premises, the Holy Spirit left me, would it make any difference? If so, why, how? What would that look like? Why is it so significant that God renewed his commitment to dwell among the Israelites? How should that encourage us? Think of all that they did and yet he came and dwelt among them. Moses wasn't satisfied, but demanded to see more of God. What are you willing to do to know God more deeply and intimately? First of all, do you desire it? And if so, what are you willing to do to see it happen? Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for your word. And I pray that as we talk and speak and share around these tables, that you would open us up to your wisdom. Help us see you, help us to see your glory, help us to see your goodness, help us to understand that Father, you have literally come to earth in the form of the Holy Spirit and you dwell in us. The power of the Godhead dwells in us and may we never take that for granted. May we never take it flippantly, treat it flippantly. May we never be complacent about the very fact that God lives in us. Show us that and help us to live like that. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.